Welcome to Island Conversations with Sherry Bracken, where we talk about issues facing our Big Island community. Island Conversations, Sunday mornings on KWXX at 6.30 and on B97B93 at 7 a.m. Or listen anytime at kwxx.com. Island Conversations, brought to you by KTA Superstores, where you're someone special every day since 1916. Now, here's your host and producer, Sherry Bracken. Aloha, good morning. Today, we're going to continue our conversation with attorney Darl Gleed and Dr. Norm Goody about some of the documents that we need to have legal healthcare-related, etc. And today the focus really is on healthcare documents. In part one, attorney Darl Gleed talked about how anybody 18 and older needs some kind of advanced healthcare directive or a release of medical information. And we also talked about wills and trusts. You may hear that interview online at kwxx.com or at b97hawaii.com, or you can go there and then download it to your computer. You can listen to it online. If you go there on your phone, you can actually subscribe to the podcast and they'll automatically come into your phone. Now let's get to this week's conversation with Kona-based attorney Daryl Gleed and Dr. Norm Goody, who works in the emergency room at Kohala Hospital and formerly was the medical director for Hospice of Kona. I would like to start talking about some of the health-related documents that we are all told to have. And I'd like to start with an advanced health care directive. What is it when is it needed by whom? Darrell Gleed, let's start with you. Okay, so Hawaii has a law allowing for execution of an advanced health care directive by an individual 18 or older, stating what their wishes are as to end-of-life decisions, and that's what an advanced health care directive is. Our state law provides a sample form. Many of the health care providers, based on that same form, will provide a form to individuals that they can use, and uh, in most cases, those are very fine forms. They follow the state and my form, actually, that I use follows the state's given form. Okay. Now, there's another term called durable power of attorney for health care decisions. How does that relate to an advanced health care directive? The newer law that we have actually incorporates the health care directive into the advanced directive, so we don't have separate health care directives for health care anymore. That's our old law. The new law combines those into one, an advanced health care directive, which gives your end-of-life decisions and also appoints an agent that you can make you know, as your agent immediately or at such time as your doctors determine that you can't make your own decisions. So at this moment, I can execute an advanced health care directive and I can appoint my husband and my brother, one or both of them, or I can have my husband and then if he's not able to help, then it can go to my brother and then to another brother. Is that sort of what we're talking about here? With one exception, the law provides it can only be one person at a time because doctors like Dr. Goody don't really want to have to be deciding who's going to be giving him instructions. So the law provides one person only is dealing with the physician and making these decisions. And actually, Dr. Goody, Norm Goody, why don't you comment on that? Because I've actually had other doctors tell me the same thing. They don't want families sitting there arguing in front of them about what to do. It's not that we don't want families doing that, because I've certainly been in many situations where I've moderated a discussion amongst family members trying to make a decision. But the problem is, ultimately, someone has to make a decision. And really, when there's one person who's been designated that decision maker, it's easier for everybody because then you can simply go to them and say, look, talk amongst yourselves, take a vote, do whatever you need to do, arm wrestle, but we need, we need an answer and you know who to get that answer from. 
Okay, I'd like to talk about some of the specific questions that are asked on a healthcare directive. I know that attorneys handle these forms, but I think having a doctor help us understand these forms would be really, really helpful because it's kind of tough when you're sitting in front of the attorney and you're looking at these choices and you're thinking, wow, what does this really mean? So, Norm Goody, let's start with the first thing. There are two options here on the advanced healthcare directive that I'm looking at. One is the choice not to prolong life. The other one is the choice to prolong life. And by the way, this is after one has appointed an agent. You know, the agent appointment is the first thing on the form. But the choice not to prolong life says, I do not want my life to be prolonged if I have an incurable and irreversible condition that will result in my death within a relatively short time, or two, I become unconscious and, to a reasonable degree of medical certainty, I will not regain consciousness or Three, the likely risks and burdens of treatment would outweigh the expected benefits. That's the choice not to prolong life. Norm, help us understand. What does that really mean to you as a doctor? Well, people come to end of life two different ways, expectedly and unexpectedly. So an expected way might be a progression of cancer, progression of heart disease, progression of lung disease. And there you have some time to think about what you want to do. The person is usually mentally capable of discussing what their thoughts are, But at the same time, people can have a sudden heart attack, they can be in a car accident, they can have a stroke, and be in a situation where they can't participate in the discussion about what they want done. And then it's really up to the family or the durable power of attorney to make the decision of what to do about their life and how aggressive the treatment should be. Most people have some idea in their head what they would want done, how they would want to live, under what condition they would want to live, And it's important that they discuss that with family members and put it down in a document such as this so that if that happens, there's some direction. Because as far as prolonging life, the medical advancements have been tremendous and things we can do to keep the body alive for a very long period of time. Sometimes with either no consciousness by the individual or no quality of life, certainly. And the discussion we always had in hospice was quality versus quantity is that you know some people want to be kept alive as long as possible every single minute regardless of what condition they're in other people say well if i can't you know drink beer and play bridge i'm done (laughs) you know so it's really up to the individual to decide what they want done. Well, and that's the second choice is to prolong life. And it says, I want my life to be prolonged as long as possible within the limits of generally accepted healthcare standards. But in the first situation, are doctors willing to say to the family, it is very unlikely that your loved one will regain consciousness? Well, can doctors say that? One of the problems is none of us have a crystal ball. And we've all seen stories on the internet of someone who was in a coma for 16 years and then miraculously woke up. And an awful lot of people think that that's what happens all the time. And the reality is it doesn't. Given the limits of what we can do diagnostically, you can often tell looking at a patient that with the condition they have, with the problems they have going on with their disease process, there's very, very little chance that they're going to improve. For instance, somebody who has cancer, even if they have a small improvement, they still have cancer and it's going to continue to progress. You know, it's very unlikely someone with end-stage metastatic cancer is going to have a, a miraculous resolution of the cancer. 
So in those situations, it's somewhat easier to say, this is the prognosis I see occurring. This is what we're likely going to expect to happen. But there are other situations where someone's had a stroke where you say all we can do is watch and wait, and they might wake up in the next 48 hours, they might not, but if it goes much longer than that, the odds of them improving at that point are very, very slim. And in fact, you can then say, well, we also see their heart is starting to fail, their kidneys are starting to fail. So I wouldn't say doctors are unwilling to give a prognosis, but sometimes it's not quite as cut and dry as TV shows might lead you to believe or the lay press. Of course, the nice thing is these days there really are many more tests that doctors can do to learn more about a patient's condition than certainly ever in the past, I would say. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there are all sorts of scans and tests, but at the same time, you know, once you have the information, it's still sometimes anyone's guess as to what's going to happen because people can be teetering at the brink and whether their kidneys recover from the insult they've had from the heart failure they're in, it's just impossible to know. Dr. Goody, another thing that's on this advanced healthcare directive is the decision to provide or not provide artificial nutrition and hydration. Help us understand this, because I've had people ask a question like, well, what if I'm thirsty? Will they not give me water? And like, if you don't give people nutrition, does, you know, just tell this us more is, about okay, this. So this is a really common question that comes up. You have to look at it in the context of the individual and their disease process. So first off, even if someone says, I don't want to eat or drink anymore, if they ask for some water, we're going to give them water. That's not going to change the outcome in any way. Do people typically feel hungry and thirsty as they're getting closer well, to death? That's what's really interesting is the body tends to shut down as death approaches in most conditions. And people don't have appetite. They don't want to eat. And I've seen families forcing food or drink into a person because they think, well, they must be hungry or thirsty. And it's actually difficult to watch because sometimes it's stressful and uncomfortable for the patient themselves. And they may not be in a condition to say no, but it's not going to change the outcome. The key thing is, is there going to be a meaningful change in the outcome here? You know, someone who can no longer swallow, let's say that a common situation was throat cancer, and they get to the point where they can no longer swallow water or food. If you put a feeding tube in, you can give them artificial nutrition and keep them alive for potentially quite a while, but you're not gonna change the outcome of that disease process. So that's a situation where you're prolonging life, but it's not gonna change the outcome. Whereas someone who has been in a car accident and they have a broken jaw and their jaw's wired shut and they can't eat or drink, Giving that person artificial nutrition temporarily while they heal makes perfectly good sense because you expect them to have a complete recovery. So you have to look at the situation. Each situation is unique and different. Feeding someone in one situation may be completely inappropriate, whereas feeding them in another might make perfect sense. The next thing on the Advanced Healthcare Directive is that you want or do not want to be given treatment and medications to alleviate pain or discomfort, even if they hasten death. Talk about that. This comes up a lot and also, and there's very few people who don't want pain medication. I don't think I've ever had someone say, don't give me pain medication. The only time that's come up, is there have been a few patients who are in recovery from an addiction, and they say, look, the pain isn't bothering me. I don't want to be medicated. I'd rather not have my mind clouded. I'm okay with the pain. Most people are willing to accept a small amount of pain. What happens though when things get further along 
is you get to a point where the amount of pain medication needed now is having side effects that can either make the person sedated or incoherent or even sleeping. And you'll have some families say, I don't want you to give my mom any pain meds because I want her to be with us and want her to see us. But mom is really in a great deal of pain and suffering, and you have to talk to the family and say, look, who is this really for? What, what are we doing here? The, you're talking about withholding pain medication so that you can spend more time with her, but she's suffering. And what's really best for her maybe to give her the pain medication and let her be comfortable. There are times, you know, you never intend to cause death by giving the pain medication, but there are times where in order to get adequate pain control, you have to give an amount of pain medication that may cause them to be unconscious or even slow their breathing and may, uh, doesn't necessarily hasten death, but it may result ultimately in their dying, but you're never intending you're never giving the medicine, they call it a secondary effect. You're giving it to try and control the pain, not to, for euthanasia purposes. Are you typically talking about morphine, which is what I hear about used often in right. terminal what, cases? What, yeah. Morphine is probably the most commonly used medication in hospice for a number of reasons. One of them is it's inexpensive. Also, it's very easy to give because you can give it orally, you can give it other routes, IV, subcutaneously, rectally. So morphine is an easy medication to use. It's also relatively safe because it's not so potent that the amount used to control pain, there's a lot of leeway between that amount and the amount that causes someone to stop breathing. In the press right now, we hear all about the fentanyl overdoses for heroin addicts. And part of the reason is fentanyl is another opioid like morphine, but it's so potent that the difference between the dose to get the effect to get high and a dose that causes you to start breathing is very minimal. So it's very easy to err and have an overdose. Well, morphine is a much safer medication for that purpose. If somebody is unconscious, can you as a doctor tell if they are in pain? There are nonverbal signs and symptoms of pain that we use when we're looking at someone who's either unconscious or has dementia and they can't necessarily verbalize their feelings well. So you can look and to see if someone is grimacing, if their eyes are tearing, if their heart is beating fast. So there are a lot of things we can do to look at nonverbal signs of pain, but you also have to take that into consideration the overall clinical picture, because someone who is anemic is going to have a fast heart rate. So it's not cut and dry, but yes, there are things that as professionals we look at to help us tell whether we think someone's in pain. And just a brief interruption to remind you, this is Island Conversations. I'm your host, Sherry Bracken. Today we're talking with attorney Darl Gleed and Dr. Norm Goody about some of the health-related documents that we all need. You may hear this and previous Island Conversations interviews online, kwxx.com or b97hawaii.com. Before we get back to our conversation, a word from our sponsor, KTA Superstores, which employs almost 900 local people at their locally owned stores on this island. At KTA, local and fresh means you get the very best Hawaii Island has to offer. The grass-fed meats you find at KTA are raised without added hormones or antibiotics. Our seafood department is stocked with sustainable choices caught in local waters by local fishermen. KTA carries the largest selection of Hawaii Island homegrown produce. Our mountain apple brand is all local so you know it's fresh and delicious. Local and fresh always tastes best at KTA. Back to attorney Daryl Gleed and Dr. Norm Goody. If I have executed an advanced health care directive in another state, Daryl Gleed, is it valid here or do I have to have one here for this state? 
No, our law provides that uh, a validly executed health care directive from another state will be honored here to the extent it doesn't violate some public policy or direct law that we have here. If I am out of state and I have one here from Hawaii, will that document work wherever I am? In the same way, yes, okay. in another state. If I'm incapacitated and do not have an advanced health care directive, what happens then? Do I just sit there and suffer? Actually, our law is a pretty good law. It provides that Dr. Goody can appoint from a, a group of interested people, family members usually, can appoint a surrogate to make health care decisions. But it means also the flip side of that is in the short run, all the medical care providers have to act as if there is no advanced directive. So if the paramedics show up at the house or if somebody collapses in public, they have to do everything possible medically. So that's chest compressions, intubation, artificial ventilation, the whole bit, until this decision is made. And that can sometimes take hours, days, or longer. I just want to make mention that our law also provides that individuals can customize their health care directives, add to them, provide some of the specific language that you've been dancing around here, you know, like specific language about when you would want morphine, for how long, you know, how long would you be okay with being in a coma, those types of things. You can be very specific about it in the health care directive if you would like, as right. long as it doesn't violate a public policy. In, in fact, the advanced care directive is very customizable, and people typically will put in there if they have religious beliefs, if they want a priest available, I mean, there's a lot of things you can add to that. It's not just about the medical stuff, but the question we usually start with the family is, have they talked about their death? Have they talked about their belief system? Did they go to church? Do they have anything they've talked to you about before? Did they have a friend die and say, oh, I'd never want to go through what he went through? That's the way we start that conversation with people is, what did they tell you? What do you know of them? And that sort of leads to people should always talk with their family members and even their friends about how they feel about end-of-life situations because I found with my own parents, because they were crystal clear with my brothers and me as to what they wanted, it sure made our lives easier when the time came that we had to be those people who were in charge of their health care. Doing this is actually a gift to all of your loved ones because it's a tremendous burden on family members especially feelings of guilt about making these some of these decisions. So if the family members know that this is what mom wanted, I can't tell you a number of families I've been with who have been comforted by the fact that this is what mom wanted. We knew she wanted this. And it allowed them to come together and be there in support instead of having to be there and have some kind of a discussion about what to do and second-guess themselves. And again, be especially racked with guilt over, did I make the right decision? Did I do the right thing? You know, was I aggressive enough? Was I too aggressive? So it really, um, that's how it plays out in the rest of the family is they're the ones put under a lot of pressure to make these decisions if you don't make them. And I have to agree. I told many people often that my mom and dad gave us, the kids, the greatest gift by being totally clear. We had the family discussions, and we had them actually early on, and then we had them as my mom and dad got older and then needed this more. So, you know, I was very, very grateful to my parents for not making us make a decision that we knew they wanted, but nevertheless, we'd already discussed it specifically. You know, it leads me to many people are concerned about the fact that they may get dementia or Alzheimer's. If one has dementia or Alzheimer's, do these documents still apply if they were executed before that particular diagnosis? The answer is yes, to the extent the language in here says that when you can no longer make your own decisions, that's when this kicks in. 
then whatever is provided in the document is honored by the medical community. We do have, like I say, the ability to customize the document. And sometimes you have to be careful because you can't really put things in the document, or even if you did, they, they wouldn't be enforceable. Things that would run counter to state laws or run counter to policies of the medical center or the conscience of the doctor. Like Norm said, in situations, he's always going to provide fluids to somebody that's able to take fluids, not by IV, but you know through the mouth. You know, and that's probably a policy of different hospitals and places where they would always do this. So you might put some of these things in there that may not be enforceable, but yes, you can be very specific about what you want. And again, that's just basic compassion. Giving someone a sip of water or a wet cloth to have on their lips is very different than giving someone IV hydration or force-feeding them fluids through a syringe. The problem with the Alzheimer, and there's kind of a move across the nation, no states have adopted this idea of the Alzheimer's, you know, having these very specific wishes about being provided food and fluids through the mouth, that kind of thing. The problem with it is you have these laws that require to provide basic health care. And so when do you run afoul of those, you know? And just not to get too far off topic, but even hospice has some regulations about what is allowed legally for patients on hospice because hospice is not supposed to be about prolonging life and treating the underlying problem, but treating symptoms in a terminally ill patient. So someone who can't swallow from a throat cancer is getting artificial feeding, in theory, you're prolonging their life. So that muddies up the water even further. I don't want to talk in this interview about our new medical aid and dying law, because I'm going to do a completely separate interview about that. But that is the new law, effective last January 1st, 2019, that says that if one is diagnosed with a terminal illness and expected to pass away within six months, that they may begin the process and go through a lengthy process and obtain medication that would allow them to make a decision to, if they wish, take that medication when the burden that they are undergoing is too much to bear. So the question is, people have asked me, should something be put into these documents now that says, I'll probably want to use medical aid in dying? That's the question. Well, there's nothing that you could put in, in these documents that enforces that because the state law has that list of things you have to go through and it needs to be through the medical profession that all this is arranged. And So I haven't been putting it in my health care directives. People are welcome, though, when they're customizing to express their wish that they would want to use this procedure if it's available. Okay. Now, let's get to the next important document, I think, which is, I used to think it was called Physician's Orders for Life-Sustaining Treatment, but now it's called Provider Orders for Life-Sustaining Treatment, or a POLST. What is a POLST, Daryl Gleed? My experience with a POLST isn't that much, because I just say, go see your doctor, because okay. it has to come from, it's like a prescription from your physician in order to have that order. But basically, when EMT or fire department comes into the home, they're looking at your refrigerator or maybe a wall near your bed. They're looking for a little poster, a little green poster, to see if you have this. It would allow them not to resuscitate. Well, I'd like to say that I am so happy to have a doctor <laughs> here with us today. Norm Goody, what is so, a post? So How's the, it used? Well, so the reason Darrell doesn't do the post is because it has to be initiated by either a physician or an advanced practice nurse, so a medical provider. And it is actual medical orders that dictate treatment at end of life. So usually it is completed by someone who has a life-threatening or a serious medical illness. So there's a reasonable chance that they are going to die. 
it defines just how aggressive the treatment should be as end-of-life approaches. That's the basic premise of it. So basically, one wouldn't do one. I wouldn't do one now because I'm feeling just fine. But if I became seriously ill, possibly ultimately terminally ill, that's when my doctor could fill this document out. Okay, let's go through what's in here. The first segment in here is cardiopulmonary resuscitation or CPR, which everybody I think knows is when you do chest compression, sometimes breathing. Right. So your choices are either have CPR or don't have CPR, which is also called a do not resuscitate or DNR. And that's something that you see a lot in lay culture, that term DNR. So basically, at the time of death, the heart stops beating. Now, if someone has a reversible medical problem, there's a good reason to try and get their heart beating again so that you can fix the problem. So if they have a blocked coronary artery, get the heart beating, go in, do a stent or a bypass surgery, get them back to new. But if someone has a terminal illness, doing CPR is pretty futile because typically all you're going to get to, if you can get the heart started again, is back to 15 seconds or five minutes before the heart stopped. So if you're five minutes from death and you get the heart started again back to three minutes earlier, now you're three minutes from death. I mean, you're not really changing the outcome by keeping the heart going because the heart is really just a muscle. It's just a pump. It's moving blood around. But if the pump stops, then obviously life ends within a few minutes. Well, it sounds like the DNR portion of this is one of the most important portions. That's the portion that I've heard everybody talk most about. It is because, you know, CPR is traumatic in a couple different ways. It's traumatic for the patient. I've done CPR more times than I'd like to count. And invariably, you break ribs when you're doing it because you're putting a great deal of pressure on someone's chest. You're compressing it two inches. So if it's an older person with fragile bones, you're breaking ribs. It's, it's traumatic. So there's that. And it's also traumatic for all the people involved, for the family members who might be there witnessing this. That's not necessarily how they want to remember their loved one. So it's not really a peaceful end of life. So if it's a futile endeavor, then there's really not much point in doing it. So we try and convince people who we think it is a futile thing not to have it done. And most people don't want it done. They, they realize, hey, when I'm done, I'm done. And the CPR isn't going to change anything. So don't do it. Especially older people, I would imagine, Especially as you older say. people, exactly. So the other sections on here seem to be more akin to the advanced healthcare directive because it talks about comfort measures and additional interventions and full treatment. So it, it seems like the rest of it's sort of similar. Well, again, I, you know, I, I said earlier, there's really two different ways that people end up at death, either suddenly or slowly. And the other things on here, the B and C is their sections, really are more towards the people that are slowly approaching death as opposed to the people who are at death because they pertain to interventions medically and artificial nutrition. But it's important that someone in this category that needs it should have both the healthcare directive and the pulse because the pulse is there. The healthcare directive may not arrive for hours exactly. or, or a day or two later. And the pulse, it's so all there. You had so. mentioned earlier looking for that green thing on the fridge. The pulse is just a regular document, but we usually printed out on green paper, lime green paper in Hawaii, only because that is a very recognizable color and people tend to post it on their refrigerator. But we always reminded people, you know, if you're leaving the house, take a copy with you. 
Because if you're at Costco and something happens there and the paramedics show up, if you don't have a post, they're obligated to do everything. So I just want to confirm something, though. Typically, if one calls 911, fire department comes, are you saying that they will honor the post? They will not resuscitate if you have a valid post? That's the law. Yeah, this is a valid medical order. The paramedics would very much like to honor your wishes. But if you don't have this document, then they are not able to do that because they have to perform to the standards and levels of care in the community, which are to provide full care. That's our default, to do everything. So if you don't have this document, then they're obligated. They have to do it. Okay, very good. Darrell, I understand there's also a document called an Advanced Mental Health Care Directive. What is that? And not a lot of people know that we have a law allowing for a separate health care directive relating only to mental health care. When would you need that? Well, in situations where you have a mental condition and you'd like to name an agent and give instructions and give that agent the authority on what facilities that you should go to if you need hospitalization, what your preferences are about what physicians to use, what healthcare providers, medications, whether to use electroconvulsive therapy or not. Which is uh, shock therapy. Yeah, emergency interventions and who can visit you. You can have a directive that spells out a lot of these things that are specific to mental health care patients and not particularly covered under the, the general health care directive that we use for end-of-life decisions. When you say mental health care, like what are the conditions you'd be talking about? Because a lot of people might suffer from depression or whatever. Dr. Goody, have well, you seen this? I was not aware of this, but it's a really great idea because you know, people think of mental health, they think crazy, but there's actually quite a few mental health conditions where people fluctuate in their level of ability to function. So people with depression can get severely depressed, suicidally depressed, non-functional depressed, where they don't leave the house. Um, and they can't make a decision to step in and take action to get the treatment. And people with bipolar disease can get very manic, where again, they can't make rational decisions. So having... Uh, an advanced directive to deal with these transient but very specific problems is a very, very good idea. Darrell, anything else to add? Only that it can be, you know, even who's going to take care of the children temporarily, who's going to take care of the pets temporarily, because people that have mental health have ups and downs, and, and it's in these troughs and these severe times that they'd want something in place, and other times they're completely fine functioning in their lives. Yes, that's a, a very, very interesting and a very good idea. Would that also, Doral, allow the agent to have financial control so that the person's assets are being managed while they are perhaps in the hospital or whatever? No, no. You would definitely want a separate durable power of attorney for financial matters for that. Okay, very good. Thank you. So I've asked tons of questions. We've talked about an awful lot of things. Darrell Gleed, how often do these kinds of documents need to be updated, whether it's a will or a trust or your advanced health care directive? I say you look at everything at least every three years, and any time you have a major change in finances, family, health. I agree. Things change over time. People's conditions change. Their, their opinions change. Are there other documents that we've not talked about that you all, as either medical or a legal professional, want to mention? Well, definitely powers of attorney for financial matters and that type of thing. You know, a lot of people don't know that Hawaii does have a law that provides a form for a durable power of attorney. So it's not something you would have to see a lawyer about, although I still recommend it. Um, you know, that's an advance that we've made in the law, so it's pretty accessible to get a power of attorney in place. Why would you need a power of attorney? What are the uses? To name an agent that is able to sign for you on legal and financial matters, 
not only if you become incapacitated, but perhaps if you're traveling overseas and something needs to be signed for you. The most recent changes in the durable power attorney laws have been generated by the digital assets, we call them, your eBay accounts, your online banking accounts. All of these companies were not providing information to an incapacitated person's family members because they didn't have to. And now we have these laws saying if you have a um, power of attorney that provides for it, then they have to provide the information. That's good to know. I would just add it's important that if you have these documents that you make sure your family, your loved ones, even your best friends know about them and possibly even have copies of them. Because if you and your spouse are driving down the road and are involved in a car accident and you're both unconscious and taken to the hospital, it doesn't do anyone any good that there's advanced directives sitting in a drawer at home that nobody knows about. And even if your kids know about it and say, yeah, I think mom signed an advanced directive, if they're on the mainland and the advanced directive is in your home in a file somewhere, it's still not accessible. So it doesn't really change what can be done. So having documents is the first step, but making sure that the documents can be accessed when they're needed is just as important. And I like the idea of sending a copy, particularly of the advanced healthcare directive to whoever might be those people who are gonna speak for you, because time is of the essence when right. something bad happens. Right. Good advice. In closing, is there anything else, Dr. Norm Goody, that you would like to remind us of? Just that at some point, all of us are gonna need these documents. And again, as I said, sometimes death comes over a slow protracted period and other times it's a sudden unexpected event. So having them in place early is really helpful. Darrell Gleed, attorney, what else should we know? Having these documents done, having them signed and your family knowing where they are gives you peace of mind, lets you put that behind you and you don't have these worries. I think that's what you're buying when you come in and, and get these documents set up with an attorney. Where can people learn more about some of these legal issues? Are there good online sources? Yeah, even some of the online companies provide a lot of information that I think is pretty good, like Nolo Press, N-O-L-O, -O, Nolo Press, and even LegalZoom. They have a lot of written information on them that, you know, I, I hate to say it, but they're not too bad. And it's because they have attorneys that are monitoring these sites and are writing the information. They're usually pretty well up to date. You have other organizations like ACTEC, A-C-T-E-C, -E which is a very reputable organization that the top attorneys are members of. They write a lot of information, and there's accountant organizations that do the same. There's also an organization called Kokua Mau, which is a Hawaii organization. It's K-O-K-U-A-M-A-U dot org. They have all of these documents available on their website and a lot of information, including videos discussing what these documents are and explaining them in great detail. And that's exactly where I got the copies of the POLST and the Advanced Healthcare Directive. So that's a really good reference, Norm. Dr. Norm Goody, Attorney Darrell Gleed, thank you so much for being with us today. Aloha. Aloha. Thank you. You're welcome. And to our listeners, thank you so much for being with us. I have found this week and last week to be super informative, and I hope you have as well. This is Island Conversations. I'm Sherry Bracken. Today and last week, we talked with attorney Darrell Gleed and Dr. Norm Goody. Until next week and another Island Conversations, please, let's all live and drive with aloha. Ahoi ho. Thank you for listening to Island Conversations with Sherry Bracken, available anytime at kwxx.com. We welcome your feedback and suggestions at info at kwxx.com. Join us next week for another Island Conversations with Sherry Bracken. Brought to you by KTA Superstores, where you're someone special every day since 1916.